Have you ever been hurt? I know that you have because in your question form, more than 70% of your families have been affected by divorce. More than 50% of the families have been affected by adultery. More than 50% affected by alcohol and drugs. More than three quarters, almost 80% affected by depression. More than 50% by other mental illnesses. 65% by overeating. Financial loss, more than 50%. And that's just partial list. Have you ever been hurting? Has your heart ever been broken? Have you ever felt pain so real it felt like your insides were being ripped out? Sadness so deep, you were sure you would drown and never see the sunlight of happiness again. In 1993, I started my final year of psychiatric residency. I was stationed at Fort Gordon in Augusta, Georgia. In the summer of that year, my my wife and I were celebrating our sixth anniversary. And as the new year approached, this was to be a, a year of celebration, a year of culmination of years of hard work, a year of fulfillment, of achievement. But it didn't work out that way. December 31, 1993, New Year's Eve, my wife moved out. She told me her plans was to have friends come and get her things while I was at work that day. So I went to work, New Year's Eve, with a heavy heart. The new year was not looking bright. And just when I thought it was bad, it got worse. At 11 a.m., New Year's Eve, 1993, my pager went off. For me to call the hospital operator, Stat. I got on the phone, called the operator, was put through to a nurse at a hospital in Chattanooga, Tennessee, who told me my father had just died. They told me he was walking along in a conversation, fell over. They started CPR on the spot. Ambulances were called. CPR was continued to the trip to the ambulance, several rounds of medication, but he never responded. My wife was moving out, and my father was dead at age 57. Have you ever been hurt? Has your heart ever been broken? Have you ever felt pain so real it felt like your insides were being ripped out? Sadness so deep you were sure you would drown and never see the sunlight of happiness again. I can tell you that whatever your heartache, whatever your pain, whatever your discouragement, it can be healed. No matter how bad the pain, don't give up. No matter how dark the depression, don't give in. No matter how high the hellish shadows of despair, don't surrender. But remember, if we put our life in Christ's hands, we can never be placed in a position for which God has not made provision. Whatever may be our situation, we have a divine helper to lead us to peace. Whatever our problems, we have a counselor to comfort our hearts. Whatever our sorrow, bereavement, or heartache, we have a sympathizing friend. It is God's desire to heal your wounds, to mend your broken heart, to remove your pain and make you whole. And I want to explore with you seven steps that we can take to cooperate with God to experience healing of heart and mind here and now. But first, I want you to think about a physical wound. Think about a gash, a a, a laceration, a physical wound that you've had happened to you. Once it's occurred, once we've had the wound, can we go back in history and undo it? Can we change time? Can we remove the the fact that this wound is there? No, once we're wounded, we can't change history. We can't take it back. We can't undo it. So we have three options. 
Three options once we're wounded. Option number one, we can treat it most effectively to bring healing as efficiently and as quickly as possible, sutures, antiseptics, antibiotics. Two, we can ignore it. Hey, nothing wrong with me. Three, we can actively infect it, get some manure and rub in it. Once we've been wounded, we have three options. Heal it quickly, effectively, efficiently, ignore it, infect it. This is true with our emotional wounds as well. Once we've been emotionally wounded, we can't change history. We can't take it back. We can't undo it. So we can deal with it as quickly as possible to bring healing. We can ignore it. We can infect it. Jessica came to see me depressed, not sleeping, not eating, crying all the time. She was 27 and had a 13-month-old child. And six months earlier, she awoke to find her husband in bed, dead, next to her. Jessica blamed herself. She said, if I were awake, I would have heard him stop breathing. If, if I would have heard him stop breathing, I could have awakened and, and done CPR. She filled her mind with images of him laying there cold and blue. She had a purse made and put his picture on it and carried it everywhere she went. She put pictures of him up all over the house. She thought of him constantly. She told herself, I can't go on without him. I should have died with him. She began to comp- contemplate suicide. Jessica was hurt, injured, heartbroken. She had suffered loss, real loss. She could not undo the loss. She could not take it back. But Jessica was infecting the wound with lies, with distortions, with falsehoods that served only to worsen the pain, confuse the mind, and prevent healing. Jesus said, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. This principle works on all levels. The truth may not be pleasant, but the truth heals. I had a patient who was dying, dying of colon cancer. It was too late for treatment, too late to be saved, too far spread to heal. Joe was dying. Joe told me that that four years earlier, he began to notice some rectal bleeding. But rather than going to the doctor for an evaluation, he told himself it must be hemorrhoids and ignored it. He had three options. He chose to ignore it. Joe took the fact of rectal bleeding and chose to create an explanation that was more comforting than the discomfort and fear of accepting what possibly could be. But had he gone four years earlier, most likely he would have been cured. It's the truth that heals and the truth sets free. John couldn't sleep. He couldn't eat. He cried frequently and felt like a loser and a failure. His wife of seven years had just left him for another man. And John began to ruminate, to blame himself. Maybe if I had more money. Maybe if I was taller. Maybe if I would have bought her more presents. Maybe if I'd have taken her on more vacations. Maybe, maybe, maybe. John was hurting. John was searching. But John was not being truthful with himself. That his wife's choices were reflections of her character, not his. John was infecting his broken heart with distortions that caused more pain and prevented healing. The truth heals. The truth sets free. If you've been hurt, if you're in pain, if you have lost something or someone, if you've been through divorce, if you have other injuries or pain, I want to review with you now seven steps that we can take to bring healing. Step one, stand your ground and do not run. Step one, stand your ground and do not run, even if painful. When I was six, when I was six, in uh, the elementary school we went to, in those days they had uh, a swings that had chains on the side and hard wooden seats for the swings. Anybody remember those? And we used to stand up on those things and swing. And those of us who weren't too bright would uh, try to run under the swings as people were standing and swinging on them. 
Anybody remember doing that? Is anybody not as bright as me out there that did that too? Don't raise your hand, okay? And I was in first grade and I was six and I had my timing off and that swing came and hit me smack in the forehead and, uh, and knocked me down and caused a laceration on my forehead. And I remember that the principal picked me up, called my mother, and my mother took me to the doctor. And I still have vivid images in my mind of being held on that table and that doctor was coming at me with this needle. And if I could have run, I would have run. But fortunately, my mother held me and made me stand my ground. You see, our reflex when we're hurt is to run. To run from the pain. But... If I would have run, I would have a nasty scar on my forehead today. I don't have one because my mother made me stand my ground. Stand my ground. Stand your ground and do not run, even if painful. Our feelings lead us to temptation. Our feelings will often lead us away from the path of healing, from the path that is right for us. We must use our judgment to choose to do what is right despite how it feels. There's an old saying that helped me once. Maybe it'll help you. It goes like this. Pain is inevitable, but misery is optional. In this world, we can't avoid pain. Everybody experiences pain. Even Christ experienced pain. But misery almost always is an option that we're choosing. Let's consider an abscess. An abscess can happen usually under the skin, but an abscess is an infection under the skin and as it grows, there's like this pus pocket under the skin. And it's warm, it's, it's a tender, it's red, it's swollen. Now, I don't know if any of you know, you cannot cure an abscess with antibiotics. The reason for that is that blood can't get to the center of the abscess anymore. It's, an, it's a pus pocket. Blood can't get there to cure it. So the blood can't bring the antibiotics in. So the way you cure an abscess is lancing it. You cut it open and you drain the pus. That's how you cure an abscess. Now imagine you've got that abscess and it's got a chronic dull ache to it. It's not too bad. It's kind of just throbbing a little bit. And you can ignore it most of the time unless somebody touches it, bumps it. Then it hurts. But imagine what it would be like with that abscess when the doctor sticks in that scalpel and cuts it open. What's going to happen to your low chronic level of pain? Shoot way out the ceiling, right? But for how long? A skilled surgeon will have that thing drained in few seconds, but for a few seconds, serious pain. But because of that marked increase in pain, many people will put it off. They'll avoid it. They won't stand their ground. And the longer they put it off, what happens to that abscess? It gets bigger and it gets bigger. And if it doesn't eventually get drained, it will infect the blood, cause sepsis, and it can actually cause death. We have to stand our ground. Think about physical therapy. After a broken leg, it comes time to do your physical therapy. And it's first day and you've got to put weight on that leg. What's that going to feel like? And if you have the attitude, you know what, doc, I'll be glad to do physical therapy as soon as it doesn't hurt. <laughs> You'll never walk again. We have to be able to make decisions with our judgment to do what's right, healthy, and reasonable, even if it doesn't feel good. We have to stand our ground. Grief hurts. And because it hurts, we have a reflexive response to try and run away. But we can never run away from grief. We can't go around it. We can't go over it. We can't go under it. We can only go through it. And so I use an analogy with my patients that help them deal with grief. I tell them to imagine going down to the beach. And if you're in the north, you go to the shore. Um, but you go to the beach if you're in Florida. And at the beach, if you've been to the beach, imagine you're out in the water and a wave is coming in. 
And as you see this wave, you turn to run away from it inland, but it's a pretty good-sized wave, and it catches you from behind as you're running away. What will it do? Knock you down. But if you see the wave coming, and as it approaches, you stand your ground and you'll lean into it, what happens? You float up over it and stay on your feet. Grief comes in waves. If you've never noticed that, those of us who've grieved, you'll know there'll be periods of relative calm where you're okay, you're not an abject crying spell, and then suddenly you'll hear a song on the radio, you'll see a hat, you'll smell a perfume, you'll see a cologne, you'll hear, and boom, here comes that wave because we're running from it. And that wave knocks us down. We collapse, we've got to run out, we've got to go home, we can't stay in the supermarket, we can't stay at church, we've got to, we're crushed under the weight because we're running from it. So I tell my patients, I want you to do these exercises, schedule into your schedule 15 to 20 minutes every day where you can be home alone. And for those 15 to 20 minutes, you turn off the TV, radio, and everything else, and you sit down and you lean into it. You think about who you've lost. You think about what you've lost. You think about how your life has changed. And if it hurts and you need to cry, you cry. You're home alone. If you need to scream, that's why I want you alone, you just scream. If it's so bad you got to hit something, then you pound on your mattress. And you work this out every day. And then if you're out the next day and you see a hat that reminds you of your loved one, instead of falling down there, you go, you know what? I'm going to remember that hat during my 15-minute time tonight. Or you smell a cologne that remembers. See, I'm going to pull that cologne out and smell that cologne tonight during my time. Hear a song. I'm going to play that song tonight. And you bring that into your 15-minute time. You're going to have to go through it. You're not going to avoid it. But now you're staying on your feet rather than getting bashed around by these waves of grief. And I can tell you, I have had hundreds of patients tell me that this helps them significantly work through it. We don't ignore our feelings. We don't suppress them. We don't infect our wounds with them. We don't distort our ideas with them. We stand our ground and we deal with our feelings as directed by our good judgment. Step one, stand your ground. Step two, be truthful. Seek the truth. Don't let feelings determine your beliefs. Be truthful. Step true. Be truthful. Truth about ourselves, about our condition. This was one of Jessica's problems. She felt guilty that her husband was dead rather than grief-stricken. And guilt is a way of our minds unconsciously, when guilt, when we've lost a loved one, there's a way of our minds unconsciously trying to take responsibility to fix it. You see, on some level, you understand if somebody has died, the only person that you really can control completely is yourself. And when you've had somebody die and you want to undo it, you realize the only person you can change is you, so the mind unconsciously will try to point out or figure out something you did wrong. So that if you change that thing in you, then you can undo what happened to them. And so you'll start feeling guilty. I should have woken up. If I would have woken up, I could have seen he was, I could have done CPR. See, I can fix that. Now I can have him back. So oftentimes in a grief state, rather than experiencing grief, we experience guilt. And it's inappropriate guilt because it's our mind's way of trying to undo the loss. We need to be truthful, truthful about ourselves, truthful about our situation. We need to be truthful about God. Don't let fear and insecurity dominate our view of God. I can't tell you how many people who have lost something or someone think bad things about God. Why did God want my child to die? Why did God want my child to die? Why did God kill my husband? Why did God want me to lose this job? Why did God want my child born with this brain defect? Why did God want... You understand? Have you heard these things? 
lies about God. That God. Why did God want me to be molested by my babysitter? Why did God do that to me? Why did He permit it? Why did God? We must be truthful about God. God is our friend. He's on our side. He's always there to help. We must be truthful about our situation. That we are never alone. Jesus said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And when you have this perspective, when you can see things from, from the godly perspective, keeping Jesus in mind, you will remember there is always more people on your side than whoever stands against you. Even when you stand like Martin Luther, apparently singly and alone, or let's take another example from the Bible, Elisha, and the armies of Syria come gathering around, and, and the servant was all freaking out, and Elisha says to the servant, hey, there's more for us than for them. Remember? He says, open your eyes. And what did he see? Chariots of fire all around. What's it say in, in uh, Daniel? How many people are gathered around Christ's throne there in Daniel chapter 7? 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. Do you know why it says 10,000 times 10,000? That's the highest number in Hebrew. 10,000 times 10,000. It's the biggest number they had at the time. And thousands of thousands. So 10,000 times 10,000, how many? Is that a million? Is that a million? 10,000 times 10,000? I think it's a million, right? Yeah, it's a million. And thousands of thousands. So we're talking hundreds of millions uh, in heaven and more. And that's just the angels around Christ's throne. And beyond that, all the intelligent worlds. You understand, all those angels are ministering spirits on your side. God's Holy Spirit, God's Son, God Himself, all the intelligent beings on all the other planets in the universe, all are on your side. The only people that might be against you would be on this planet. We are, listen, we're on God's side, we're in the majority here. Remember, you're never alone. Perspective makes a difference as well. Okay, the truth about the facts. If divorced, many of my patients are tempted to feel like they are a failure because the relationship failed. That they are a failure personally. I failed. I failed. The marriage may have failed, but that doesn't mean you as a person are a failure. I'm going to tell you what will determine whether your life is a failure or not is nothing that has happened thus far in your life. What determines whether your life is a failure or not is what happens from this point forward. Nothing of the past will determine whether your life's a fail failure. From this point forward determines whether your life is a failure or not. We must be truthful. The truth sets free. This requires the use of our reason and the investigation of the evidence and choosing with our will to apply the truth in spite of how we feel. Step one, stand your ground. Step two, be truthful. Step three, enlarge your perspective. Enlarge your perspective. I'm going to tell you a story, and then I'll let you draw your own conclusions. A friend of mine grew up in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan in the 1950s. Upper Peninsula of Michigan, 1950s, very rural. It was a farmland, and he grew up on a farm. There was no helicopter 911, uh, life force type stuff going on. Uh, it was very, very rural. He says they had a neighbor, and, in, and their neighbor had a child who was an unruly child, a rebellious child, a disobedient child, constantly in trouble child, about six years of age. And that child was instructed repeatedly by the parents to never, never play around the heavy farm equipment. 
One day, my friend was out working in their farm, and they got the word that this child had been severely injured playing around the farm equipment. There was no life force to call. There was no 911. So the neighbors did what only thing they knew to do. They called all the neighbors, asked them to hurry and come, kneel down and pray around this boy that God would heal this child. My friend was in that prayer circle. He tells that he remembers they were holding hands in that prayer circle. And as they prayed, that would go around the circle and they pray, Lord, we know that you are the creator of life and we know that you have the power to heal this child. Lord, if it be your will, restore this child to health. Thy will be done. Thy will be done. As they went around the circle, thy will, thy will, thy will, thy will be done. Until they came to the mother. And the mother said, God, I don't care what your will is. If you don't heal my son, I'll never speak to you again. I will tell you what happened. You can draw your conclusions. The child survived. He lived. And he grew up to be a bane on that family. Constantly in trouble. Constantly into vandalism, into violence, into into truancy, into drugs, into alcohol, stealing from his parents, stealing from the neighbors, in and out of jail. A constant bane on his family. Those are the facts. Those are the facts of what happened. Now, Did God injure this boy? Or did this boy get injured because he was an unruly and rebellious child and didn't listen to instructions? His own actions injured himself. Now, is it possible that those injuries were sufficient that they might have resulted in the child's death? God knows a large perspective. That's our point, in large perspective. God knows the character, the nature of this child. God has the power to heal. God has the power to not act. If God, if the mother would have trusted the, the situation in God's hand, might God have been willing to, if it was in fact His hand that saved the child, restrain His hand and not act at all and let the child go to its rest and save that family years of misery? On the other hand, God loved that mother so much that He didn't want to lose contact with her. And He was willing to intervene and save that child's life. I don't know whether God intervened in that situation or He just wasn't that that seriously ill. But the story gives us opportunity to consider possibilities, doesn't it? And wouldn't it be interesting if that mother could have trusted God with outcomes? Outcomes that we don't know? Larger perspective. I had a man, a patient, who was dying of esophageal cancer. He was in his 30s. He had two children in elementary school. And when he was initially diagnosed, he was initially attempted, tempted with feelings of discouragement, despair, and depression. But he quickly wrestled those out with God and put his life in God's hands. And through the rest of his treatment course, he had a cheerful and upbeat attitude. He, would, he, would, he really was a happy guy. And he witnessed to God wherever he went. And it was through this time that he saw two of his siblings who had left God and left the church come back and give their hearts to God and be rebaptized because of what they saw in his life. And he told me before he died, he is dead, he told me before he died, he said, if God needed me to go through this as a way of reaching my brother and sister for the kingdom so that we can be together for eternity, I'm glad to do it. We have to enlarge our perspective. We must enlarge our perspective. This requires that we reason beyond our feelings. We examine evidences, including biblical evidences. And we come to know God well enough to know without doubt that He is always on our side. Step one, stand your ground. Step two, be truthful. Step three, enlarge your perspective. Step four, move on and say goodbye. Move on and say goodbye. 
When we lose something, someone, some ability, we feel like life will never be the same. And we're tempted to sit down in the middle of the road of life and say to ourselves in some emotional way inside our hearts, I quit. I'm not going on until you can go with me. I had a 43-year-old lady come to see me who had a child die 10 years before coming to see me. And for the last 10 years, her day consisted, day in, day out, almost every day of her life consisted of getting up in the morning, going into that child's room, grabbing that child's teddy bear, curling up on that child's bed and crying every day for the last 10 years. She had two other children. She didn't go to their plays, didn't go to their ball games, didn't go to their activities. She cried every day for the last 10 years for the child who died. I want you to imagine walking in a national forest like up in Alaska or Montana or someplace like that. Really large national forest. There's no radio. There's no 911. There's no cell phone coverage. And you're walking with your loved one and your significant other has a heart attack and dies in the middle of that forest. You can't carry them out. It's miles to go. Now, what would you do? You might and probably would sit down with them for a while and you would cry and you would hold them. But at some point... You have to decide. You either get up and go on without them, or you lay down and die there with them. In this world, when we lose people, we're tempted to sit down emotionally in the road of life with the dead one, rather than getting up and going on without them. But Christ said we must let the dead bury the dead. Many people lose physical health, disabilities, Uh, have physical disabilities, can't do what they used to do. They feel like their life is a burden, feel like they don't have any worth anymore. They go through the motions of life, but their heart is no longer in it. We must say goodbye and move on. Philippians 3, 13 and 14, Paul speaking, Brothers, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. It's understanding the truth from God's perspective that lets us realize it's by going on, it's by letting go, it's by saying goodbye and moving forward that we will get to see our loved ones again. It is by going on that we take the the ministry, take the message to the world. And when my father died, I was tempted to sit down on the road of life and quit. But I realized that if we Christians would do our job and take the gospel, the kingdom of the world, that Christ would come and we could be with our loved ones sooner. Step one, stand your ground. Step two, be truthful. Step three, enlarge your perspective. Step four, move on and say goodbye. Step five, be hopeful. Hopeful here and hopeful for eternity. Hopeful here and hopeful for eternity. This is helped by a perspective, by stepping back and seeing that larger view. A few years ago, I went to attend the the funeral of the mother of a friend of mine. And as I was expressing some condolences to him, he reached out, put his hand on my shoulder and said, it's okay. I know in whom my mother has believed and I know where she is and I know I will see her again. Which stood in sharp contrast to those patients of mine who don't believe in God when they lose a loved one, they say, I know I'll never see my mother again. Step six, forgive and learn. Forgive and learn. Forgive others, forgive self, and learn from experience. I had a lady at church came to see me uh, after a class I was teaching, and and she told me how her daughter had gotten married recently, and the man that her daughter married was now beating her daughter. Her daughter would come over and have black eyes, fat lips, and and be bruised and battered. And and, and, and now you understand, the lady who is telling me this, she has not been hit. 
She has not been brutalized. She has not even been spoken badly to. It's her daughter that's been hit. Yet this lady had incredible amounts of anger, resentment, bitterness. I tell you this to help you see the insidiousness of sin. You see, sin against her daughter had planted a seed in her heart of bitterness, resentment, anger. And if that seed is not rooted out, it will grow up into a fruit in her heart that she will harden her heart and she will eventually become like the man who beats her daughter. Do you see that? The only weapon God has given us to get that seed out of our heart? Forgiveness. We forgive those who do us wrong. It is by forgiveness that we remove from our hearts those seeds of resentment, hatred, bitterness, demand for vengeance, hostility. We remove that from our hearts. I don't have time. I have an entire talk that I do on the seven myths of forgiveness. Uh, it's on the website. You can, you can listen to that for free. Uh, we also have a chapter in my book on the seven myths of forgiveness. But there are seven myths that people hold that impair their ability to forgive. But it's important we learn to forgive. Many of you have heard the story of Corey Ten Boone. How she and her family hid uh, Jews during Nazi Germany and Holland. And how they were caught and sent to concentration camps. And how she and her sister were brutalized over time. And, and eventually one German soldier, particularly brutal, killed her sister. And then how afterwards, Corey Ten Boone went through Europe giving uh, talks, inspirational talks about God and Christ and His interventions in her life. And, and in the 1960s, after one of these talks, she was walking down the aisle and a man came down the aisle with his hand extended asking her forgiveness. And it was the German soldier who had killed her sister. She describes how in her heart she had this anger, this rage, this desire to pounce on him and strangle him. But she realized in her judgment, I mean, see, feelings, feelings tempting, she realized in her judgment that this was not Christ-like. That she was in a desperate struggle and she sent one of those emergency prayers. Anybody ever had an emergency prayer? Okay, She sent an emergency prayer, Father, I need your help. Help me forgive. And she said at that point, it took every ounce of her willpower, power of choice, she chose to extend her hand. And as their hands grasped, she describes, it was like bursting of a giant bubble. All the anger, all the resentment. And she had an overwhelming peace that had come upon her. And she was freed herself by forgiving Him. We must forgive and learn. We must forgive ourselves. We must forgive others. The question in this whole process, and the reason many people have a difficult time forgiving, is they have a difficult time accepting that they have made mistakes. And I'm talking about forgiving themselves. They look back and they go, how could I have been so stupid? How could I have done this? They, they continue to beat themselves up. I, I knew better. Why did I do this? We have to remember the difference between the mature and the immature. The healthy and the unhealthy. The mature, healthy people uh, and, and the immature, unhealthy people. The unhealthy and immature are not the ones who make all the mistakes. And the mature, healthy are not the ones who never make mistakes. No, everybody makes mistakes. The difference is that the mature, healthy people, when they make the mistakes, number one, accept responsibility, take ownership, to the best of their ability, repair, heal the damage that their mistakes have caused, forgive themselves, seek and repent before God, and learn from their mistakes so they don't continue to repeat them over and over again. The immature, unhealthy, take no responsibility, externalize, blame others. It wasn't me. It was that woman you gave me. I didn't do anything wrong. If you put her here, I would never take that fruit. Uh, externalize, blame others, never learn, and continue to repeat the same mistakes over and over again because they don't learn from those mistakes. We must forgive and learn. 
Step seven, as we stand our ground, as we pursue the truth, as we enlarge our perspectives, as we move on pressing toward the mark, as we are hopeful, as we forgive and learn, step seven, put God first. Keep the focus on knowing God. Get to know Him, His methods that we talked about in the, in the five laws this morning, His principles, His motives. Try to understand God's problems. Did you know God has problems? Understand His problems, what He is trying to accomplish, that He is working to heal us all. And then as an intelligent friend, join Him in His work. Choose to follow Him, pursuing the mind of Christ, who did not think equality with God was something to be grasped, but gave it all up, surrendering Himself all the way to the cross. Become a giver. Engage in ministries. Engage in service. Seeking to use your time, your energies, your resources, your talents, your education to benefit others, to uplift others. Take the focus off of your injuries, your losses, your emptiness, your heartache. Seek to lift up another, to heal another, to minister to others as God directs in your life. And in so doing, we move from victory to victory and are freed from fear, freed from the lies about God, freed from the domination of the selfish nature, freed to become real friends of God who like Moses, now notice Moses, age 40, murders an overseer, practicing survival of the fittest methods. Age 80, something has happened. He's walked with God. He now says, you can take my name out of the book, willing to give his life to protect others. Or Saul of Tarsus, who prior to Damascus Road is willing to beat in prison, stone others. But after Damascus Road, he writes in Corinthians, I would gladly give my life that my fellow Jews might be saved. Something has changed. Something is different. Those in Revelation 12 described as ready to meet Jesus when He comes, those ready to see Him face to face, those ready to take that fiery chariot ride into heaven, these are they who do not love their life so much as to shrink from death. Selfishness and fear have been replaced with love for God and love for others. Now is the time to think and to reason. Now is the time to weigh the evidence. Now is the time to decide to decide whether to accept God's invitation of friendship with Him. Are you tired of hurting? Are you tired of the heartache? Are you ready to experience the healing which only God can give? Then I invite you to say yes to God. Now is the time to rise up over insecurity, over feelings of fear, over the concern of what others think, and choose to open your heart to God. Have you ever been hurt? Has your heart ever been broken? Have you ever felt pain so real it felt like your insides were being ripped out? Sadness so deep you were sure you would drown and never see the sunlight of happiness again. Well, I can tell you that whatever your heartache, whatever your pain, whatever your discouragement, it can be healed. No matter how bad the pain, don't give up. No matter how dark the depression, don't give in. No matter how high the hellish shadows of despair, don't surrender, but come to Christ. For when we put our life in Christ's hands, we can never be placed in a position for which God has not made provision. Whatever may be our situation, we have a divine helper to lead us to peace. Whatever our problems, we have a counselor to comfort our hearts. Whatever our sorrow, bereavement, or heartache, we have a sympathizing friend. Gracious Heavenly Father, we open our hearts to you now. And we pray for your healing. Take the broken pieces of our hearts. Heal them back into your original design. Comfort us. Restore us. Help us experience your love that we now can become channels, conduits of your love. Love others as you have loved us. We pray in your holy name. Amen.